You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1872nd edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 31st of March 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham, the producer is Ruth, and your readers are Caroline and myself, Graham. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And we're going to start, first of all, with headlines. And my first headline is, Fierce competition sees some homes in counties sell for 20% more than guide price. Government could take stake in sizeable sea plant, report claims. Pension campaigners still do not know if they will be compensated. Council gears up for another battle over slots centre. So, homes in Suffolk are frequently selling for higher than guide price despite rapidly rising house prices, with as many as seven buyers competing for the same property. Estate agents in Suffolk say some properties have sold for in excess of 20% above the guide price. And in one case, a property seven potential buyers were vying for the same home by best and final offers. Bosses at Rightmove said average asking prices are more than 10% higher than a year ago and have been stoked by an imbalance between buyer demand and the number of properties available for sale. There are now more than twice as many buyers as sellers active in the market according to the website, which it said is the biggest mismatch between supply and demand that it has ever recorded in this time of year. Katie Stevenson from the residential sales team at Savills, Suffolk, said people were still being drawn to the country as they searched for space and chance to live near the countryside or coast. But she said there's simply not been enough properties on the market to meet demand. This has created fierce competition and consequently prices have risen as a result. A large number of properties that we have sold this year have sold in excess of the guide price. That's especially true for those in the most desirable areas such as Woodbridge, Oldborough, Southwold and surrounding villages as well as further inland such as Framlingham, around Bury St Edmunds and the Dedham Vale. Tim Dancy, director of Jackson Stops in Ipswich, said that there's a scarcity of stock and lots of people who are in a position where they can go ahead and buy. They've either sold or are in rented or they've raised the cash. That's what's driving it. As, as we get into the spring, more properties will come onto the market. There won't be quite, much, quite as much scarcity and that will ease the pressure. But at the moment... There's not a lot of sign anything's coming through. The proposed sizeable sea nuclear plant could be boosted by the government taking a 20% stake in the project. It has been reported. The BBC reports that French developer EDF could also take a 20% stake with ministers hoping the move will encourage other investors to take up the remaining 60%. But stop sizeable sea campaigners yesterday questioned how the government can make an impartial planning judgment on the project if it is intending to invest in it. The Planning Inspectorate's report containing its recommendation on the proposals is expected to be made public in late May. Previous estimates have put the cost of Sizewell Sea at about £20 billion, less than the plant being built at Hinkley Point in Somerset, though the figure could rise with global inflationary pressures. Earlier this year, the government committed £100 million to the project's development, but it now looks set to commit further to it, according to the BBC. The debate over Sizewell Sea continues to split opinion, with many welcoming the jobs and skills it would bring to the county, 
but others arguing the benefits don't outweigh the damage it would do to the Suffolk coast. In a statement, Stop Sizewell Sea said, We are outraged the government plans to throw billions of pounds in taxpayers' money at Sizewell Sea, as well as hit households with a nuclear tax on their bills when renewable solutions, insulation, efficiency and energy storage will achieve energy security faster, more cheaply and with much less risk. In intending to take a 20% stake in Sizewell Sea, the business secretary is backing a project over which he is about to make a supposedly impartial planning judgment. This cannot be considered due process in anyone's eyes. Meanwhile, Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi also suggested on Sunday the government needs to do more to win local support for onshore wind or nuclear power. Mr Zawahi told Sky's Sophie Ridge on Sunday's programme the way you do that is to make sure the local community has a real say. But also, we've seen great examples of other people where, if they build a nuclear power station within a certain radius of that power station, they get free power. A Sizewell Sea spokesman said last week, we are committed to ensuring that the benefits of Sizewell Sea will outweigh the impacts during the construction period. Those benefits will include thousands of well-paid local jobs, contracts for local businesses and a boost in training and skills for local communities. Pension campaigners still do not know if they will be compensated. Thousands of Suffolk women are still waiting to hear if the government will compensate them for changes to their pension arrangements amid warnings that many claimants could die before any settlement is paid. Nationally, there are fears that nearly a quarter of women born between 1951 and 1960, who had their pension rules changed without being told, could have died before becoming eligible for some compensation. The issue affects women who lost out when the pension age for women was changed from 60 to bring them in line with men's pensions. The change was made in 1995, but the women were not told until 2008, leaving not enough time to alter their pension arrangements. They formed the Women Against State Pension Inequality, WASPI, campaign. And in July last year, the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman said they had been victims of maladministration by the Department for Work and Pensions. Now, the national campaign has worked out that 220,000 of eligible women will have died by the end of this year, partly because of the COVID pandemic. Karen Sheldon, the coordinator of the Suffolk branch of WASPI, said there were about 6,500 women in Suffolk affected by the situation and would have been disappointed that the Chancellor had not mentioned them in his spring statement. She said they were still waiting to hear what compensation the Ombudsman would recommend. We hope to hear within the next month. It would be extraordinary if the government does not accept the findings. The WASPI campaign is calling for an immediate one-off compensation payment of between £11,666 and £20,000, with the most going to women who were given the shortest notice of the longest increase to their state pension age. Some were only given one year's notice of a six-year delay to their retirement. The all-party parliamentary group on pension inequality is co-chaired by Waveney MP Peter Aldous. He said, It is now clear that the so-called WASPI women were victims of successive government systematic shortcomings, dating from 2005. Maladministration and a failure to comply with the Civil Service Code in their communications concerning the planned changes. The APPG that I co-chair has submitted evidence to the Ombudsman calling for the highest compensation level available in making its recommendations, which we feel should be paid to affected women in recognition of their suffering. Council gears up for another battle over Slot Centre. A council is facing a second battle 
to keep bingo and slots arcades out of Newmarket High Street. Just a week after councillors agreed to fight a licence application by Mercur Slots, which wants to turn the former Shoe Zone store into an adult gaming centre, another licence application was made by Essex company Remco Leisure Limited to open a similar slots casino in the former Santander bank premises, just yards away. Members of Newmarket Town Council will be discussing their response to the second application when they meet next week. On Monday, Councillor Andy Drummond suggested councillors write to the Licensing Authority, West Suffolk Council, asking that the licence applications be discussed in full by members of the licensing panel. Something that affects Newmarket as badly as this should not be just rubber-stamped by council officers, he said. At present, councils have no powers to prevent bingo halls, arcades or betting shops setting up, even if there is already judged to be an oversupply of such premises or a risk of increasing gambling addiction. Mercury Slots, which has also submitted a change of use application for the former shoe shop it wants to turn into a casino, has set up similar operations all over the country, the majority of which have been opposed by local councils and planning authorities. But in the past two years, the company has won five planning appeals with planning inspectors overturning council's refusal decisions in Kidderminster, Hull, Doncaster, Grantham and Finchley in London, where the inspector said the opening of a gaming centre would bring social and economic benefits to the area. Closer to home, in Spalding, Merkur Slots has just begun an appeal against a decision by the District Council not to allow a change of use of a former Dorothy Perkins store in the town centre. Councillors said they did not want to lose a prime retail space and there was also an outcry from residents at the prospect of a gambling establishment with casino-style machines being allowed to set up in the town centre. The government is currently taking a fresh look at how the country's gambling industry is regulated, with gambling addiction campaigners demanding urgent reforms. A white paper is now likely to be published in May, having originally been expected at the end of last year. And now we're going to move on to some general items. And uh, in my case, I'm continuing with the story of the uh, St Edmundsbury Abbey as part of the Millennium Celebrations, uh, which have been postponed until 2022. This uh, extract is a resting place for saints. In 1081, building of the Abbey Church commenced at the East End as per normal practice. Excavation would enable three aspidal semicircular recess chapels to be constructed before the ceiling of the crypt could be built. From left to right there were St Anne's Chapel and the Mother of, St. of Mary, thus the maternal grandmother of Jesus, then the Chapel of St Mary in the crypt, followed by St Robert's Chapel with the altar of Edward the Confessor. Though never recognised as an official saint, not being canonised, Robert was a young Christian boy allegedly ritually crucified by Jews of the town on June the 10th, 1181. It was common practice at the time to blame the Jews for any unsolved child murders when there were no suspects. St William in Norwich, another example of several, given the title Little St Robert, the monks were to vener venerate him as a martyr, misguided retribution by the townspeople at hand in 1190. His shrine purportedly worked miracles, the monks making great play of this, charging believing pilgrim, pilgrims for the privilege to worship here. From the crypt, substantial round and wedge-shaped supporting piers several feet in circumference would meet the floor level above. Here, in the presbytery stood St Edmund's Shrine, behind but above the high altar. Nearby were two further shrines, that of St Botolph, patron saint of trade and travel, and St German, an East Anglian 7th century prince, 
killed in battle by Penda of Mercia, first buried at Blythborough, then translated to his own shrine here in the Abbey in the 11th century. At the east end, there was an ambulatory of seven bays, this being a processional way with narrow arches. During excavations by the Ministry of Public Buildings and the works between 1957 and 1964, the crypt was excavated down to a depth of 14 feet. Pieces of stone, Saxon balusters, vertical mounted shafts, used in windows were discovered and dated to around the early 11th century, possibly giving rise to the theory they may have come from Knut's Rotunda Church. With the building of the north transept of Baldwin's Abbey Church, part of the nearby Rotunda may well have been compromised at this time. As this would be eventually demolished, it may well have been that elements from that could have been reused in the building of the new abbey. A lifeboat service has had to take matters into its own hands, reshaping an erosion-hit beach so it can safely launch. The Hemsby Independent Lifeboat Service says not being able to get out to sea to vessels and people in distress during the busy summer could be disastrous. On Saturday, machines were churning the sands and repositioning huge concrete blocks to shore up protection and make an access for the boat, which would otherwise struggle to negotiate the drop in an emergency. Coxswain Dan Hurd said it was frustrating there was no other help, and that if they didn't do it, no one else would. The work, costing around £7,000, was being funded by the lifeboat, the landowner, and local businesses in Hemsby, who were willing to contribute. We have the summer coming up, and we're struggling with this slope, Mr Hurd said. This work has got to be done to keep us going through the summer, otherwise we would have lost the slipway. We know what needs doing, so we are getting it done quickly. Mr Hurd added, if we do not do this, then we are off service. We do not worry about money when it could be that lives are at stake. There was also the added benefit of providing easier access for beachgoers, and the RNLI, who would not be able to bring in their lifeguard station if things were to stay as they were, he said. The 44 giant blocks, estimated at around 14 tonnes each, were laid in 1942 as tank traps in the event of a German invasion. They have been moved around six times. So far, the digger had unearthed around 30. Visitors arriving on sunny Saturday were having to negotiate a path around the blocks while the digger did its work, the sight of the sand being so churned up and the rocks exposed proving an attraction in itself, sparking many conversations about how things used to be. Villager Kenny Cheney said, the beach used to be some 14 feet higher, and that fishtail groins were the answer to building it back up. A rock berm aimed at slowly slowing erosion at Hemsby has yet to win planning permission or funding, leading to uncertainty in the village where in some cases investment has been put on hold. Borough and County Councillor James Bensley said something needed doing at legislative level with outdated laws doing nothing to help the plight of vulnerable places like Hemsby. To donate to Hemsby Lifeboat, visit its Facebook page or email coxwin at hemsbylifeboat.co.uk. The service is also appealing for sponsors. Former Beirut hostage Terry Waite said he advised Nazim Zagari Ratcliffe to take time away from the spotlight to help her adjust to her new life. British-Iranian Mrs Zagari Ratcliffe had been held in Iran for six years on unsubstantiated charges, but was finally reunited with her husband and daughter, Gabriella, in the UK last week. She was released along with fellow dual national Anush Ashuri after Britain settled a £400 million debt from the 1970s with Iran. Mr Waite, co-founder and president of Charity Hostage International, has been supporting Mrs Zagari Ratcliffe and her family during the ordeal. 
He was kidnapped by Hezbollah in Lebanon in 1987 while he was serving as the then Archbishop of Canterbury's envoy. Speaking in a personal capacity, Mr Waite, 82, from Hartist, said he had advised Mrs Sagari Ratcliffe and her family to have time away, which is the advice Hostage International gives to all those returning, and that he took himself all those years ago. They are taking at least 40 days away without any interviews or contact with media at all, and then they will reassess their position after 40 days, he said. That's a very good thing to do when you come out. You are subject to so much pressure and there are so many things to adjust to. It does take time. He added, it's getting to know the family and the world and it's changed and beginning to plot the future course of your life. She's going to be very much sought after after the 40 days. Speaking during a press conference on Monday, Mrs. Zagari Ratcliffe spoke of her happiness in returning home, but added, The coming back was also very tough. You realise you are coming back to a daughter who is nearly eight. I left her when she was not even two. She also spoke of her desire to leave the black hole in her heart on the plane. I'm not going to live the rest of my life with a grudge for the last six years, she said. Mr Waite said her capture was against all humanity and all laws, but it was important to try to forgive. If you allow anger to build up inside yourself, it does you more harm than those who held you, he said. Objections have been lodged to proposals to build houses behind a historic Suffolk pub because community leaders say the town has already had permission granted for more homes than required. Cordage 35 Limited has applied for, for permission to develop unused land at the rear of the Swan Inn in the High Street, Clare. The scheme would see the site at the pub, a listed building which dates back to around 1600, used for two three-bedroomed homes. But Clare Town Council has lodged an, an objection because the number of houses for which planning permission has been granted in Clare now exceeds the current West Suffolk Council development plan allocation. Town councillors say there has been no upgrade to infrastructure stroke services to cope with the extra housing. The Clare Society also strongly objects to the proposal. Ed Little, property director at Hawthorne Leisure Limited, owners of the Swan, said building homes was a better use for the land and money raised from the sale would be reinvested into the pub. Barclays has announced that it will be closing its Felixstowe branch later this year. The bank, which is located at 18 Hamilton Road in the town centre, will be closing on June the 29th. A document released by Barclays revealed the number of counter-transactions in branches had dropped in the two years leading up to the first Covid lockdown in March 2020. Felixstowe will still have a number of banks after Barclays closes its doors, including Santander, Halifax and TSB. The nearest Barclays branches will be in Woodbridge and Ipswich after the closure. According to documents released by Barclays announcing the closure, more than 1,000 customers use the Felixstowe branch every month. The announcement comes after HSBC announced plans to close its bank in nearby Woodbridge as part of a transformation into how branches operate within individual communities. Highwoman's former hotel could become a rehab centre. It has hosted lords, a king and highwaymen and is even said to be home to a ghost. But it could be closing time for one of the region's most historic hotels with developers planning to convert it into a rehabilitation centre for professionals and sports stars suffering with addictions. The plans for the Grade 1 listed building on the Norfolk-Suffolk border at Skoll have prompted opposition from neighbours. The hotel was formerly known as Skoll Inn, but now trades as Dis by Verve. Under the new plans it would, would become Verve House and would offer treatment for alcohol misuse, sex addiction, gambling 
codependency and eating disorders through therapies, yoga and motivational interviewing. The planning application submitted to South Norfolk Council says that clients would range from first responders, professional sports people, lawyers, judges, corporate employees. He adds, the new proposal as Verve House will continue to offer accommodation where clients will stay for a matter of days, with a week being the average. The restaurant will stay fully operative, but for the guests only. The owners say changes to the property will be minor. However, neighbours have spoken of their sadness at losing the inn, with many calling for the application to be turned down. Of 33 responses submitted to the council, six are in the support of the scheme, with the rest objecting. One said, the Skoll Inn is part of the heritage of the area. The use as a rehabilitation centre is completely inappropriate in a small village. It will also remove from public use a building which has been frequented by the local community for nearly 400 years. However, supporters argued the plans would help protect the building, ensuring the money is there for its maintenance. Existing staff are expected to be retained with new consultant psychiatrists, counsellors and support staff recruited. A statement to SNC on behalf of Verve said the transition was necessary because the hotel has not been profitable for several years. The Skoll site would be the second hotel converted into a rehab centre by Verve after the Hare and Barrel in Watton last year. And now here's a history of the inn. The Grade 1 listed building was constructed in 1655 as a coaching house called the White Hart. Up to 40 coaches a day called at the inn during its 17th and 18th century heyday when it also served as a post office. The hostelry also featured a vast round bed which could sleep 30 travellers at a time. The two fireplaces in the bar are said to be the largest in East Anglia. In 1671, Charles II is said to have eaten breakfast at the White Hart, while Lord Nelson once slept here. In the 1780s, it had a less reputable guest, a highwayman named John Belcher, who used the inn as his headquarters. On one occasion, he is said to have ridden his horse up the stairs to hide in a bedroom while being pursued by the law. A ghost called Emma, or the White Lady of Skull, is said to haunt the property. She is reputed to have been murdered by her jealous husband while staying at the inn in the 1750s. Emma's husband accused her of having an affair with a highwayman also staying there. She now appears wearing a grey dress and bonnet and is always crying. The building was called the Skull Inn for many years until bought by Verve in 2017. And now we're going to move on to do some letters. And my first letter is from Robert Brander, uh, Rushmere. Demand for allotments. Sir, regarding your article about Woodbridge allotments, proposed evictions, I waited ten years to get an allotment at Chestnut Pond, Rushmere. I have held it for 45 years. The reason for the first eight years delay was the negotiations for the present land. The next two years delay was the result of my having started as a teacher and my conscience required me to allocate time to lesson preparation. My house neighbour said that if I want an allotment, I should put my name down quickly as they would be going like hotcakes. Since my neighbour did not cultivate his back garden, I assumed he would not cultivate an allotment. I was correct in my assumption and took over his allotment two years later. An allotment takes time to organise. Some new allotment holders, before they have turned a sod, ask if they are allowed to sell their produce. Some, having put up a shed at great expense, find they have not got time to cultivate it and abandon the allotment. Running water is desirable but not essential for allotments. In my opinion, complications in ill-informed decision-making have resulted from the Localism Act. The Act introduces another layer of administration and opportunities for spurious decisions making made by individuals and eccentric projects. And that's from Robert Brander. 
I have a, a second letter which is related to uh, this. Uh, so I'll read that one as well, Caroline, if you don't mind. And this is from Christine Shelley from Martlesham. Space to grow your own. Sir, with regard to the story about possible allotment evictions in Woodbridge, there would be no need for allotments if the council didn't let the house developers get away with building houses on tiny plots of land. The next letter is from Anne and Michael Tarode, and that's via email, and entitled Some Excellent Entertainment. Ree Thurston College Year 11 Dance. The lights dimmed, the curtain went up, and an evening of ballet dance by the students of Year 11 treated the audience to musical tracks from Romeo and Juliet, Adele and others. The dancing covered every aspect of emotion, love, abuse, slavery, etc. Excellent ballet movement and of the highest standard. Many thanks, students, for your devoted work. Many thanks, teachers and staff. You are appreciated for your time and effort, especially in these troubled times. Many thanks for a wonderful evening's entertainment. And my letter is from Graham Day of Stowmarket. Justice for sub-postmasters. Sir, at last there is some pleasing news with regard to the Post Office Horizon accounting scandal. The government has announced a compensation scheme for the wronged sub-postmasters. However, no amount of compensation will be sufficient recompense for the mental anguish of the many involved. Neither will it bring back to those who sadly died before this outcome was reached. What also needs to be done, once the ongoing inquiry has been completed, is for those involved in this per persecution should face justice. Their assets should be seized so that more funds will be available for surviving sub-postmasters and they should suffer the indignity of poverty and social exclusion that will deservedly follow. John Wall of Bury St Edmunds, his letter is entitled Dozens of Residents Have Been Fined. When will the person responsible for the recent dramatic increase in parking fines in Bury St Edmunds Zone D be dismissed from their job for not informing the relevant parking permit holders of the suspension of parking bays? Dozens of residents in Zone D who were not informed received multiple parking fines after innocently parking their car in the usual way. Signage in the bay was either very poor or placed after the permit holder had parked. Suffolk County Council has a list of parking permit names and addresses but someone chose to entrust Telec, the telecoms company, to do a shambolic letter drop on December the 9th, 2021 it was supposed to inform permit holders of bay suspensions, but the majority did not receive the letter. Anyone who decided to appeal the fine received a rejection of challenge notice stating that all residents of Zone D had been informed. And my letter is David Sims from David Sims of Saxmundham. Sadness at P&O debacle. Sir... I worked for P&O Group companies for over 30 years and I'm very sad to see the level to which that once great company has sunk. We are surely partly to blame if we allow companies like P&O to be sold to foreign investment groups. Quick profit for some, but with no thought for the future. And Van Worden of Bury St Edmunds says Health Hub is a brilliant idea. The suggestion made by Roderick Ross to use the empty Debenham store in Bury St Edmunds as a health hub, see letters March the 11th, she thinks it's brilliant. Has the NHS looked seriously at that possibility? To think that all clinics now held at Morton Hall would be back in the middle of town near the bus station with a large choice of buses to surrounding villages. Pensioners and others with bus passes would not be faced with long waits for a bus or large taxi fares they can ill afford. At present, there is a 20-minute walk from the nearest bus stop to Drover's house in Hillside Road. Too far for most elderly or people with walking problems. If it were only possible to make this change, it could be a long-term solution and make a lot of people very happy. And my next letter is quite a long one from Liz Rushbrook of Leyston. Our children deserve better. 
So, well, what a surprise, not. I expect you will have several people writing to you along the lines that the results found by the National Middle Schools Forum, as reported in the East Anglian Daily Times March 21st, were only to be expected. As someone who is teaching in a middle school at the time of the reorganisation, as well as being a parent and grandparent of pupils in Suffolk schools, I had first-hand experience of the situation. At the time, the general opinion among school staff was that the whole object of the operation was to save money. After all, it must be cheaper to run two establishments than three. And nothing to do with raising standards. That was simply Tory spin. It is ironic to find out that actually it has cost money, not saved it. The purported rationale behind the idea was based on the fact that the SATS results for Year 6 children in middle schools were consistently lower than those in primary schools. Rather than looking carefully as to why this was happening, usually because too many middle schools had previously changed from a primary to a secondary system of operating, the council grabbed hold of the wrong end of the stick and ran with it. There is neither time nor room here to debate whether the two- or three-tier system is best for pupils. There are benefits and downsides to both. Indeed, international studies have shown that often the best system, from the point of view not only of eventual exam success, but also for the turning out well-rounded, confident, caring adults, appears to be all through kindergarten to sixth form in the same school. Careful study of public exam results every year shows up one thing that is never picked up or acted upon. After all, it would be far too expensive. And that is that small schools, whether primary or secondary, invariably do better. Unsurprisingly, really, staff have more opportunity to get to know the pupils. This debate also begs the question, what do schools exist for? Do we really want them to be exam factories or would we like our children to be educated? One thread running through the whole business of education is that of cost. Those countries that consistently outdo England in international studies, notably Finland, pay a great deal more per pupil than we do. Sadly though, although none of us likes paying tax until we come to understand the need to fund public services adequately, we will always provide a second-rate service. Don't our children deserve better? And this letter is from Martin Webb of Bury St Edmunds, and he says, I'm appalled, and I appear not to be alone, by the latest utterings of the Prime Minister, in which he compares the situation in the Ukraine with the Brexit vote. There is no way that the situation in the Ukraine can be compared with people voting in a referendum. He said that people voted in droves to leave the EU. He should also remember that people voted in droves to remain. That, however, is by the by when one considers the comparison he was making. Such a comparison is an insult to Ukrainians, Russians and all those who oppose the war. I suppose that I have grown cynical under this present government and its spinning. However, I cannot believe that a man so intelligent would make such a crass statement without an ulterior motive. The motive being to lead us to forget other examples of his crassness, partygate to name but one. I, like many people, have not forgotten. And my next letter is from Neil Lanham from Botsdale. Museum's Cultural Importance Sir, I would like to thank the many people who have taken interest and written in support of not changing the name of our museum, the Museum of East Anglian Life. Why I think this museum and its appropriate name are so very important to us, and even mankind, is that Suffolk, more so than Norfolk, has preserved its natural culture and inherited traditions more than any other county in England. As late as the 1960s, inherited traditional events were still taking place across the county in the Saturday night public house rituals of song and dance, 
when it had long faded away in the shires and other counties. Likewise, the art of natural storytelling, street banter, idioms and customs, the works of George Ewart, Arvin, sorry, I beg your pardon, works of George Ewart Evans, Adrian Bell and others confirm this. Bell's 1933 paper, English Tradition and Idiom, is a delight in its understanding of the less lettered man. However, by far the most important thing, I believe, is the work that has been done here in Suffolk. That shows the natural way of thinking of those of the prior culture, this being in terms of complete metaphorical measurement, and this is borne out in the retention of the above-listed cultures. For example, when Paul Haney asked Mick Massey why had such a small shire horse, he replied, when you go for your fish and chips on a Saturday night, you don't take an arctic, do you? That is a metaphor that gives a measurement on why, if we can stand in the mindset of the past and look at ourselves today, we can see what modern man has lost. George Hewitt Evans outlines this on page 127 of his book, The Leaping Hare. But more important again is the realisation that we are now in a world of artificial technology, gadgetry, which has developed in a society where people cry out for mental help. This drastic change can only come into vision, I believe, by setting out a now artificially controlled mindset against what it was like in natural man of the prior culture. And this museum should be the place where such material is deposited for further research. Matthew Atwood understands that, and I feel that supporting him on his website is the best way to encourage him to lead us into getting the retention of the museum and its name. This letter is from Zigurd G. Kronbergs, and uh, comes, she comes from Barrow. My usual reaction on reading Steve Britt's The Self-Proclaimed Businessman, Librarian, Libertarian and Brexiteer columns is either hysterical laughter or barely containable anger. So it was with some surprise that for the first few paragraphs of his latest in the very free press dated March the 11th on the war in Ukraine, I found myself more or less in agreement with him. The blame for the ghastly war in Ukraine placed squarely with Putin. No equivocation, no attempt at understanding Russia's concerns. But alas, all good things must come to an end, as he soon returns to form. Apparently, all the poor Russians want is to be accepted as part of the civilised Western world. Perhaps if they acted in a civilised way, they would be welcomed with open arms. It seems also that we're to blame for not buying enough goods from them. Perhaps if they made anything worth buying, except their oil and gas, we might. And of course, the real villain is Brit's bête noire, the protectionist EU. Its speedy expansion into Eastern Europe has certainly alarmed Moscow. Of course, the fact that the liberated nations of Central and Eastern Europe have wanted to join and have joined, the EU itself a concept that's beyond Brit's comprehension, alarms the tyrant in the Kremlin. What he could not tolerate is the example of a prosperous, civilised, democratic union of nations governed by the rule of law showing up his repressive, kleptocratic regime for the economic catastrophe that it is. And now I'm going to move on to uh, something different. And this is uh, an article on April Fool's Day. The 1st of April, known as April Fool's Day in the UK, is celebrated differently in other countries. The tradition of April fish, or poisson d'avril, is a tradition in France, Belgium, Italy, and French-speaking areas of Switzerland and Canada. In Dutch it is known as April vis, and in Italian pesque d'april. On the day attempts were made to attach a paper fish to the victim's back without being noticed. Spain, Italy and the Netherlands produced postcards to send to friends and family to mark the 1st of April with 
fish featuring prominently on many late 19th century to 20th century French April Fool's Day postcards. They very often feature the recipient's address and no message apart from a question mark or guess who. The majority feature sweet young children, prettily dressed ladies and a smart gentleman, plus an artificial fish of some sort. Or there may be a flowers and gardens, plus a fish. They often seem to be similar to a Valentine card with loving messages. There are some, however, that are most peculiar and often scary. Some cards have a pig as a star, plus a fish. And this feature is about trolley buses. They replaced many town train systems in the late 1920s and 1930s, where major expense was required to modernise or provide route extensions. With the underground electrical supply system from municipally operated power stations still in place, many towns opted for the use of trolley buses. Their use grew throughout the 1930s, with London Transport becoming the largest operator in the world at the time. Nearly all the trams had been replaced by trolley buses north of the River Thames by 1939, but there remained many in operation south of the river. It had been intended to replace them with trolley buses after World War II, but a diesel bus replacement programme was introduced. The nearest local trolley bus operator to Bury St Edmunds and Newmarket was Ipswich Corporation. In other areas after World War II, trolley buses operated began to and the operation began to decline with the nationalisation of the electrical industry, thereby losing control of electricity charges, plus the decline in suppliers providing vehicles and overhead equipment. The only place where operational trolleybuses can now be seen in the UK is at working museums, the nearest being the East Anglian Transport Museum at Carlton Colville, Lowestoft. However, trolleybuses continue to provide public transport in many European cities. And now I'm going to move on to uh, a couple of general items. And the first one is MP joins 200 in March against solar farm plans. Around 200 people gathered in Mildenhall today in a, to join a protest march against plans for one of Europe's largest solar farms. The march, which set off from Sainsbury's car park shortly after 9am on Sunday, was attended by MPs Matt Hancock and Lucy Fraser, with the crowd marching on to Worlington waving placards. Seneca made absolutely no effort to engage in the process, and you can see the strength of feeling that has created here, said Mr Hancock, the MP for West Suffolk. There has been a huge range, uh, there has been a huge number of objections, and it is vital that Seneca takes its plan back to the drawing board now. The planning inspectorate also has a duty to listen to the views of the people and we are all here making sure those views are heard. County Councillor for Mildenhall, Lance Stanbury, said There is a groundswell of local concern here and this is our opportunity to send a message to Seneca. There is a drive towards renewables which has a lot of support but the government shouldn't rubber stamp projects simply because they are renewable. I think the planning inspectorate will be amazed at the number of representations that have been put forward. The project, which will cover 2,800 acres of agricultural land, if approved, has already passed the consultation phase despite the company's representatives only meeting members of the public for the first time on March the 9th in Red Lodge after its consultation had been approved. The project is now into the examination phase, with the deadline for residents registering their interest having passed on March the 17th. The planning inspectorate's decision is expected to take several months to reach. Seneca's proposals will make the solar farm the largest in the UK, spanning 981 acres of agricultural land and generating power exceeding 50 megawatts. Now this article you might find really useful. It talks about the right way to recycle and it says there are seven common recycling mistakes and so it tells us how to avoid them. 
Do you ever have that nagging feeling that perhaps what you're about to dispose of can't actually be recycled and the negative impact it could have on the environment instead of positive? All recycling has to be sorted and if you put the wrong thing in, there's the risk of cross-contamination. Indeed, according to the local government association, more than half a million tonnes of household recycling was rejected at the point of sorting in 2019-20. stroke So if you're guilty of making the following mistakes at home, you're unwittingly contributing to that massive dumping ground. Here's how to get the three R's. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Right? Number one, not properly washing off leftover food. It's important to rinse and rinse again glass bottles and jars, water bottles, milk cartons, drink cans, ready meal aluminium foil trays and plastic tubs can be recycled. But if they're not washed properly, they can contaminate other stuff such as cardboard or paper and the whole lot ends up in a landfill. Number two, putting crisp packets into the recycling bag. Unfortunately, crisp packets, sweet wrappers and the airtight bag your mixed salad came in are hard to recycle. The composite plastic they're made from, which keeps the food fresh and airtight, needs to go into your general waste bin or taken to your nearest recycling location. Number three, Pyrex dishes and beakers. There's glass and there's glass. Pyrex glass is specially treated to withstand hot temperatures, which means it can't be recycled. So make sure it goes out with the general rubbish. Number four, not separating takeaway coffee cups from the protective sleeve. Tossing the sleeve into the recycling bin is fine. If you're not sure, look for the recycling mark. But some takeaway coffee cups are treated with a special coating to handle your hot drink and therefore can't be recycled. So even though you've done the right thing by not littering and brought the cup home, it's important to check the small print. Number five, wrapping paper, tissues and kitchen roll. Brown paper you've used for gift wrapping can be recycled as long as there's no sticky tape. But anything with glitter, laminated foil, tissues and kitchen roll, the fibres aren't sufficient quality to make new paper products or to be reused. They can't be recycled. Most clean cardboard is okay, such as the inner tubes of toilet roll, but anything with a stain or dirt needs to go into your normal bin. Number six, household electricals. It's an easy mistake to make, to make but any electricals, think kettle, tetchy stuff, cables, headphones, anything with a plug can't be put into your recycling bin and needs to be taken to your nearest recycling point, including general kitchenware such as cutlery, old pots and pans, batteries should be removed, a fire hazard, and taken to specific battery collection points. And number seven, plastic shopping bags can't be used for your recyclables. They're easy to amass and chances are, every time you have a clear, a clear out, those plastic shopping bags end up in the recycling bin, which is a big no-no. No matter how tired they look, it's really important to reuse them until they've done more laps than Lewis Hamilton and then return them to your nearest supermarket recycling centre where they'll accept them and give, and give you and gift you a new one. Uh, there's a picture here actually of glossy magazines which are made out of paper and therefore they are widely recycled. If you're done with hoarding them under the bed, pop them in your recycling bin. That's handy, I think I'm going to keep that. <laughs> And uh, I've got another article here. This is Fire Engines Donated to Ukraine. Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service has pledged its support for Ukraine by providing much-needed fire engines and kit for those on the front line. As part of the National Fire Chiefs Council and Fire Aid Initiative, the service has donated two fully operational engines no longer in use and equipment including hoses. John Lacey, Chief Fire Officer, said, Like most of the world, Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service is deeply saddened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and will do everything in its power to help the country. Our thoughts are with all Ukrainian firefighters at this time 
as they continued to protect their communities during the conflict, despite the danger posed to their own lives. It is anticipated that 5,000 pieces of kit will be donated by the fire services from across the UK over coming weeks. Councillor Andrew Reid, Suffolk County Council's Cabinet Member for Public Health and Public Protection, said this will make a real difference to the country's emergency services, whose bravery and resilience cannot be underestimated as they re remain critical in responding to the atrocities caused by Russia's invasion. A super-rare Jaguar E-Type found rusting away in a barn on the Suffolk Cambridgeshire border has gone under the hammer, selling for more than £40,000. The 1965 4.2 coupe was unearthed in a small market town near the border with Cambridgeshire and Norfolk and was sent to auction at the Imperial War Museum in Duxford. Classic car dealers H&H say the owners do not wish to say exactly where the vehicle was found but have confirmed the car has been off the road for the past 49 years. It has been in the current family ownership since 1971 and went for a final price of £41,400 at the museum auction just off the A505 in Cambridgeshire. A spokesman for H&H &H Classics said, still retaining traces of its original paint and what is thought to be its original factory-fitted interior, the Jaguar has spent its entire life in East Anglia. Enzo Ferrari famously described the E-Type as the most beautiful car in the world and even five decades of dust have failed to lessen this fixed-head coupe's allure. Understood to be substantially complete, the car even boasts its original matching numbers engine. Series 14.2-litre machines are particularly sought after because of their improved gearbox, torquier engine and better brakes. If restored to its former glory, this sweetheart could fetch as much as £150,000. The car was part of H&H &H Classic's first physical auction of 2022, which saw more than 100 Classic motors go under the hammer on March the 16th. It was first registered on March the 3rd, 1965, to Crawford, Oakland's Farm Limited of Wood Farm, Caybrook. A year later, on June the 20th, 1966, DPW785C saw its first change of keeper to Mr David Trenchard. Tom, a professional jockey turned racehorse trainer based in Exning, Newmarket. The vehicle passed, han passed hands twice more before being sold via Roger Bradbury Motors to its current custodians in 1971, who purchased it to celebrate getting a teaching job. DPW785C was then driven to school on a daily basis, sometimes with a white husky riding shotgun in the passenger seat. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. So if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. And News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, it's goodbye from myself, Graham, Ruth and Caroline. Goodbye. <clears throat>